As you're taking your seats, grab your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 27. Cal Newport, writing in his book, Deep Work, tells the story of a man named Rick Furrer. Rick Furrer is a blacksmith. He specializes in ancient and medieval metalworking practices, which he painstakingly recreates in his shop. He says this, he says, I do all my work by hand and I use tools that multiply my force without limiting my creativity or interaction with the material. He explains in his artist statement, what may take me a hundred blows by hand can be accomplished in one by a large swaging machine. He says, this is the antithesis of my goal and to that end, all of my work shows evidence of the two hands that made it. In a 2012 PBS documentary telling the story of Furrer and following him along in his shop as he makes an ancient medieval sword, the documentary records this journey. It says Furrer is trying to recreate a Viking era sword and he begins by using a 1500 year old technique to smelt crucible steel, an unusually pure form of metal. The result is an ingot not much bigger than three or four stacked smartphones. This dense ingot must then be shaped and polished into a long and elegant sword blade. This part, the initial breakdown, he says, is terrible. Fur says to the camera as he methodically heats the ingot, hits it with a hammer, turns it, hits it again, then puts it back into the flames to start the whole process all over again. The narrator reveals that it will take eight hours of this hammering to complete the shape that he is intending to produce. As you watch for her work, however, the sense of the labor shifts. It becomes clear that he's not drearily whacking at the metal like a miner with a pickaxe. Every hit, though, forceful, is carefully controlled. It is meticulous in nature. He peers intently at the metal through thin-framed intellectual glasses, which seem out of place, Newport says, perched above his heavy beard and broad shoulders. Turning it just so for each impact. He says you have to be very gentle with it or you will crack it. After a few more hammer strikes, he adds, you have to nudge it. Slowly it breaks down and then you start to enjoy it. At one point, about halfway through the smithing, after Furrer has finished hammering out the desired shape, he begins rotating the metal carefully in a narrow, through through burning charcoal. As he stares at the blade, something clicks and he says, it's ready. He lifts the sword, red with heat, holding it away from his body as he strides swiftly toward a pipe filled with oil and plunges in the blade to cool it down. After a moment of relief that the blade did not crack into pieces, which is a common occurrence at this step, Furrer pulls it from the oil. The residual heat of the metal lights the fuel, engulfing the sword's full length in yellow flames. Fur holds the burning sword up above his head with a single powerful arm and stares at it a moment before blowing out the fire. During this brief pause, the flames illuminate his face and his admiration is palpable. Like a master swordsmith, God will often take us 
like a small hunk of metal that is yet to be refined, like a piece of steel. He takes us with great care and he begins to break us down with the hammer of trials, putting us into the fire sometimes repeatedly. Blow by blow, he carefully molds us, finally, finally plunging us into the oil on the verge sometimes of us feeling like we're about to crack, but bringing us out finished, strong, perfectly shaped, and useful. And as the master craftsman looks at us, he does so with admiration because he has worked hard at refining us with his own hands to make us into the image of his Savior. See, this is what God is doing when he thrusts us into trials. When we encounter the unexpected, the difficulties and the challenges of this life. He is forging us. He is forging our faith. He is building our trust in Him, our reliance upon Him, our dependence upon Him in such a unique and profound way. He's reminding us through the trials that we experience that He is the one who is in control. And though His ways are not always our ways, most often they feel like they're not our ways. They're always the right ways. In our approach to life, in our approach to trials, we are so often objective-oriented, goal-oriented. We see the finish line, and we simply want to get there. We see Rome like Paul, and we just want to get to Rome. But God is less objective-oriented and is more process-oriented. He cares less in one sense about where we are going and more about how he's going to get us there. It is in the how that God is working in us. And as we faithfully respond, we see that it's also how he is working through us. As he changes us, the impact is manifold on the people around us and the world in front of us. When God is forging our faith, he is teaching us that he alone can provide what's needed. As we look at Paul continuing his journey to the ends of the earth as he tries to get to Rome right now as a prisoner on board a ship that is being tossed to and fro by the waves of the sea. He's been reminded, as you recall last week, that God is in control. In fact, God has made a promise to him that everybody will survive if they follow his way, if they obey him. This text needs to remind our hearts, listen, that no matter where we are in this life, no matter the trials that we encounter, the storms that we're facing, we desperately need God and God alone. He alone provides what is needed in the trials of life. And as we look at the text, I want you to see first that God and God alone provides safety in the storm. He provides the safety that our hearts long for in the storms of life. And if you'll allow me to use this very real account of the storm and the boat that is being tossed by the waves as an analogy for so much of our life. Trials are commonplace. We pick the story back up in verse 27 of chapter 27. It says this, when the 14th night had come and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. 
So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. They're being driven right now by the wind and the waves across the Adriatic. Really, they're in the Mediterranean. And in the first century, uh, the Adriatic was a reference to this part of the Mediterranean Sea that they're currently in. And at midnight, you'll notice that the sailors sensed land. Maybe the sound of the waves. Maybe they could hear something off in the distance. However they determined it, they understood that they were drawing closer to land. They begin to check the the water's depth and they realize that Paul's words about running aground could very well come to pass. So they drop four anchors off the stern of the boat and they pray for day to come. They're they're breaking down at this point. This is a last-ditch effort to try to save themselves. They have been reassured by Paul. Remember Paul, the servant and messenger of God, that God, in fact, will keep them safe. But in their hearts, these pagans who do not know, love, serve, and worship the one true and living God, they still are reverting back to their old ways, to their own devices, and calling out to their own pagan gods. Now, it's interesting to note that anchoring at the stern was very unusual. It's not the common practice, but in their situation, it had great advantages. They were thinking strategically about their situation. It was a strategic way of allowing them to maintain some semblance of control of this ship as they were battered by the storm. And if things got even more out of control, which was more than likely to happen, it actually enabled them to attempt a backup plan, cutting the anchors and trying to beach the ship if necessary. I'm reminded that in the midst of the storms of life, it's normal to long for safety. It's normal human instinct to want to keep ourselves safe, to want to feel protected, to want to feel like everything's under control. It's one of the first things that we offer to people who are going through the struggles of life, isn't it? In in our humanity, and sometimes unthinkingly, when somebody is struggling, when somebody is encountering massive trials and circumstances, the, the thing we want to come alongside and tell them is this, everything is going to be okay, don't worry, it's, it's all going to blow over. No one likes feeling beaten down, afraid. We're out of control. It's normal to do whatever we can to try to provide that safety that we long for, but I I think it's important to realize as we look at this text and we think about our lives that even in our efforts and attempts, we are not ultimately in control. So while we may try to drop anchors, while we may try to position ourselves for success and maybe orchestrate a backup plan in case the first plan fails, if our faith is in anything other than God Almighty, if we are not calling out to the one true and living God, then everything we do is ultimately in vain. We will never find safety in the storms until we find our faith in God. That is in many ways what this entire passage is trying to teach us, that there is a God who navigates us through the storms, who is in absolute control, who could calm the seas as Jesus did so often in his life and ministry, just in the blink of an eye. Verse 30, look at at it with me. 
It says this, and the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. And Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Clearly, what we see here is that their plans and their gods have been insufficient. They've been inadequate. They've tried. Their best attempts have failed yet again. The gods that they cry out to, uh, they scream to, they beg to save them, can do nothing in their most difficult situations. So some of these men come up with a plan. They want to go and, and drop, pretend like they're dropping anchors at the bow, but really they're, they're hatching a getaway plan here. Contrary to the law of the sea, these sailors make a break for it and they want to leave these other passengers to face the storm's fury. They try to drop these lifeboats, these little dinghies at the side of the boat and save themselves. But verse 31 is so interesting. Paul, he, he, he rises to the center of this entire situation. You have to think here. Here's Paul, this lonely prisoner in one sense, being transported to Rome. All of a sudden, he becomes the key leader, the key spokesman, giving direction and clarity to all that's going on. He speaks up once again, and he makes it very clear. This is, listen, it's fascinating. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Think about that for a second. I found myself asking the question, why? Why did all of these men need to stay in the boat if everyone was going to be saved? I got three reasons I want to give you. Three reasons why I think this is true. And I think we can learn some things from this. The first is this, that what God longs for when we are in trials and when we are facing difficulties, what God calls us to is not escape, but endurance. He calls us not to escape, but to endure. And here's what I would love for you to be thinking about when you think about this situation. God's way is the best way to enjoy safety. God's way is the best way to enjoy safety in your life, every time. Hands down, every time, if you want to enjoy the sense of safety, the subjective sense, at least in your life, of safety, then God's way is always the best way. I really believe as we look at this situation that maybe, maybe, and again, the text isn't very clear, so we can kind of only look at this and maybe speculate a little bit, but part of me wonders if the reason that they're not supposed to go is because God knows if they leave in these little lifeboats, they're actually going to lose their lives. This is actually an act of God's grace in saving them, and God actually wants them to enjoy safety. He wants them to enjoy his saving power, and so he prevents them from going knowing that this is best for them. It reminds me as well, listen, that the way out of the storm is through the storm. Every step in the storm filled with faith. You know, the longer you go through a storm, just think in real life, the longer you trudge through a storm, every step gets more and more difficult. And the further you get, the harder it gets, the more faith is required. Sometimes God will extend a trial out longer than we had imagined. Just think about this. They had been 14 days already being driven to and fro. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 reminds us, he says, no temptation has overtake you, taken you except what is common to man. But listen, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Now just listen to what the way of escape is in the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of hardship. Here's the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Listen, the way out of a trial is through the trial. It is not running from the trial. It is not trying to escape the trial. It's not trying to, in your own strength, get rid of the trial. It is by faith pressing on through the trial and allowing God to forge in you a deeper sense of dependence upon him. Endurance takes time to build. Trials are about our enduring faith and growing faith and any kind of endurance, whether it's athletic endurance or spiritual endurance, it requires time. Secondly, I want you to notice this. What God is longing for in the midst of our trial for us is this, not backups, but belief. Not backups, but belief. In other words, I, just, I look at this text and what I'm reminded of is that although they threw down the anchors, that was one plan, they noticed as soon as that plan failed, they had a backup plan. They were going to run to the, the lifeboats, cut the lifeboats, and get out of there. Listen, God's way is the best way to enjoy safety, but God's way is the right way to enable safety. True faith has no lifeboats. Do you know that? True faith, genuine faith, has no lifeboats. It has no backup plan. So if you have a backup plan to trusting God, then you don't trust God. Lastly, what God is trying to do to us and through us in trials is this. He's helping us not to seek for opportunity, but obedience. Do you find that in the midst of trial, you're always looking for something that's going to maybe take it away, get rid of it? And, and again, the longer it goes, the harder it gets, the more and more we're inclined to try and look for an alternate solution, something else, something other than what we believe God has for us. We turn to something else to relieve the pain. We turn to something that is opposite of God and opposing God to deal with the situation. But God's way is the only way to ensure safety. The opportunities may be tempting. The things we run to may be enticing, but obedience is the only way to ensure safety in your spiritual life. If you want to enjoy that sense of peace that surpasses all understanding, it comes with a heart that longs to obey God, that is faithfully striving to obey Him by His grace and by His power. I'm reminded of Proverbs 14, verse 12. It says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Again, these sailors try to devise their own way. They try to reject God's way. God has already spoken clearly about all of them remaining on the ship and all of them being saved, but in their moment, listen, of failure and weakness and frailty, which so often describes us in the midst of trials, they turn to their own ways, and God in his grace spares them the destruction that that would have led to. God was teaching them and he's teaching us to trust him in the storms, teaching them to believe that he and he alone is their safety in the storms. What we have is true safety. When we face storms, what we hold on to is a greater anchor for our soul than anything this world has to offer. We don't need a dinghy to do what only God can do for us, amen? Amen. Cut the ropes. 
Cut the ropes. Let him go. I love verse 32. The soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. That might have been, listen, a bit of a, a rash decision. You think about it? They could have just pulled the guys away and said, hey, man, just leave the lifeboats. Forget about those. But somehow these soldiers, they hear Paul, and they understand what he's saying is true. They understand that God is speaking through him. At least in part, they grasp this. And so some soldier takes out his sword and just starts hacking away at the ropes because he ultimately believes, listen, that the way that Paul is expressing is the right way, the best way, the only way. And I just want to encourage you, listen, some of us have these lifeboats in our lives that we continually go back to that we think will save us in our times of need, the things that we're relying on, and the only way to deal with them, listen, is to hack the ropes away. Let the lifeboats fall down and crash into the ocean where they belong. Let them sink to the bottom because that's where they're going to take you if you try to jump in. Let it go. Secondly, notice this, that God and God alone provides strength in the security. He provides strength in the security. Verse 33 through 38, notice what it says. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the weed into the sea. Again, notice that sometimes God will allow a trial, a storm to continually beat us down and extend longer than we ever thought possible. It's been 14 days, listen to what he says, that they have been in suspense with no food intake. The situation is so drastic, it's so dire, the distress is so great, the weight of the situation is so heavy upon them for 14 days with the busyness of trying to save themselves and keep themselves from going overboard or the ship going down, they have found that they haven't been able to eat even a bit of food. It tells you how radical the situation is. Some people have suggested that they were simply fasting, and there's no indication of that in the text. They, they cry out to their gods, yes, but they don't seem too committed to those gods, even after one night. I don't think they're fasting here. I, I think this is the product of hopelessness and despair, and we know what this is like, don't we? We know what it's like to be in so much pain, grieving souls, feeling the weight of the trials of life and that loss of appetite. They have no strength because, listen, they have no sense of security. They have such fear, such anxiety because there is no rock for their soul. There is nothing that they can run into and feel safe. Do you see this? 
Their gods have failed them. Their efforts have failed them. They're left with nothing. They're so hopeless. They have nothing to bank on. And yet here is Paul. Paul comes through a voice, a clarion call in the midst of their despair. And he he tells them to come and eat food, to be strengthened. And what Paul presents is a radical contrast to their despair and hopelessness, to their discouragement. We have Paul who's filled with courage. He's filled with hope. He's trusting the Lord. He's believing in faith. I mean, so much so that Paul's not afraid to eat himself or to call them to take courage, eat some food. Now, it's fascinating, isn't it? If you've read through this text, I wonder if the words sounded a little bit familiar to you. In verse 35, when he had said these things, it says, He took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, broke it began to eat. Those words sound so familiar, don't they? To the New Testament, the Lord's Supper. It's really a fascinating connection, I think, being made. Listen, the breaking of bread and the giving of thanks was customary for Jews, for sure, as a blessing before the meal. So let's not make more of this than what the text is actually communicating. And Jesus was observing that custom in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper. He was basically just following the Jewish customs. They break bread, they give thanks, and they participate together. But I want you to see this too, that Paul also was observing this custom here in the presence of a predominantly pagan group. The communion language of the meal on the ship may not be so much an indication that they celebrated the Lord's Supper, but that Paul and the other Christians, if there were others on board, were reminded of how Jesus broke bread with his disciples, how he continues to do so, how he continues to be present in the lives of his people. One commentator said this, he said the meal had a meaning for them it could not have had for the pagans. Their Lord continued to be present with them. He was present in that time of particular need. For them, the meal was more than needed sustenance. It reassured them of their Lord's presence to deliver them. I can't help but think that there is some truth to this, that as Paul did this, it's amazing, first of all, that Paul, in front of a pagan audience, is willing to give thanks publicly to God. And can you imagine that? I bet you that prayer was, was such a prayer of gratitude for God's provision and protection up to this point. God, you have seen us through the storm this last 14 days. We are still alive, and it is only because of your grace. It's only because of your power. It's only because your hand has been guiding this all along. God, you are completely and totally in control. And what you give us now in society Sustaining us with this food is likely just a reminder, Lord, of your promise to sustain our souls. I think Paul, in his heart, is being reminded and encouraged of the ultimate source of security, the ultimate strength that is drawn, listen, from the knowledge of our security in Jesus Christ, that he has been watching us, that he has been with us, and that he will never leave and forsake us. There is power for our souls. There is strength for our souls, no matter how weary and weak we are. Listen, when we realize the truth that the presence of Jesus is always with us, It gives us the strength we need to endure. I recently read a a book about a guy who hired a former Navy SEAL to come and live with him for a month to train him physically. 
And one of the accounts, this guy, literally this Navy SEAL shadowed this guy everywhere he went in his life and his business. And, and this guy had to do everything the SEAL told him. Whenever he did it, he had to do it all. All, all was pretty insane. But one of the accounts is funny. He, this guy, the, the owner of this, the writer of the book, he's outside of his house and he's, he's, uh, he's doing a little bit of yard work. And some guys who look like they don't belong in the neighborhood are walking around from house to house and uh, asking questions as if they're doing surveys. And he picks up on the reality that these guys, they're, they're, they're casing houses. And so they walk up to him and they begin to ask him a question uh, about, uh, the, is the owner of the house here? And how, how long have, have they been here? And all these kinds of questions. And, and he, he looks at these guys and he's a little bit intimidated. They're rough looking characters. And so he pretends like he's not the owner of the house. And he says, well, just give me a second. I'm going to go get the owner of the house. And these guys, knowing, thinking that there's something suspicious going on, begin to kind of wander off, and out comes this Navy SEAL, 250-pound man made of muscle, probably one of the most intimidating figures you could possibly see. And he chases these guys down. <laughs> and he lets them know what happens if they try to come near that house again. And the author of the book says he just sat in this house with his feet up on his chair and a big smile on his face never feeling more secure in his life. <laughs> you know, it's amazing, right? When you understand who is protecting you, who is with you, who's got your back, you can look at the storms and the circumstances of life, and though they may be hard, listen, you can go through them with courage. You can allow his security to provide strength for your soul and that's exactly what God wants to remind us of even through this passage listen when we go to the Lord's table one of the greatest things that we're reminded of is this that God has promised that he will be with us until the end of the age such reassurance in that having the presence of God and the struggles of life is beyond any form of security the world has to offer God is greater, he is stronger, he is more wise and more capable than any Navy SEAL. And we are strengthened, we are intended to be strengthened by that security. God holds you in his hands and he will not let you go. No fear for we know who stands with us. We know the one who holds us fast as we've already sung this morning. They see Paul's strength. What's so fascinating, these other pagans see Paul's strength. They hear his words, but they look at him and they see that there's something different about him. And that somehow gives them courage. Paul's courage, Paul's strength that he's drawn from his God, the security that he knows he, ha- he enjoys because of his God, somehow is then seen by them and, and in some small way it's embraced because they too grab food, they begin to fill themselves, and they're feeling encouraged. I'm again just reminded and struck by the reality, listen, that the watching world takes notice when Christians stand in the strength of his might in the face of trials. The world is watching. God loves to draw people to himself through the steadfastness and the faith of others, especially as they endure trials. To testimony, not to our strength, not to our character, not to our ability, but to his strength, to his character, and to his ability, amen? So people look at that and they're drawn because they know that they can't hold up under the circumstances and they wonder, how is it that you're doing this? How are you still singing when you're in so much pain? How are you not weeping and screaming and crying like everybody else is over the same situation? How do you still have a smile on your face? when there should be nothing but pain and sorrow. 
Don't lose sight of this reality in the struggles of life. While God does not always promise rescue, listen, and survival in dangerous situations, he always fulfills his promises. It's that strength and security that reminds us that God and God alone provides what is needed. Lastly, listen, God and God alone provides salvation in the shipwrecks. Things go from bad to worse. Sometimes there's a moment of reprieve before everything goes haywire. Verse 39 says, Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land. But they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck or stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf, and the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. They tried to run the ship aground. They cut the anchors. They untie the ropes that hold the rudders. They hoist the foresail, hoping to catch the the wind to thrust them towards the shore as hard as possible and as quickly as possible. It drives them towards the shore, but no sooner than they reach, they hit a, a reef, a sandbar in the water. The boat sticks tightly in. The bow stuck. The stern begins to be battered by the pieces, or see, by the sea being ripped to pieces. The soldiers' response to turn and kill the prisoners, perhaps it was a plan to save themselves by eliminating others. More likely, they're trying to avoid the punishment for allowing prisoners to escape. In the height of this confusion and the chaos, Julius the centurion prevents these soldiers from carrying out their plan. He's come at this point to greatly respect Paul Maybe he's come to the realization that Paul speaks for the one true and living God. So in his attempt to spare Paul, he is used by God to spare every soul on that ship. He orders them, those who can swim, to jump overboard and make for shore. And anybody else who can't swim, just grab a piece of the wreckage and float your way to shore if you can. What's so fascinating is every single one of them, 272 individuals, survives safely to the shore, not a single death. Thankfully, shipwrecks in our lives, both literally and metaphorically, are uncommon. But they do happen, right? They do happen from time to time. There are shipwrecks that happen in our lives for a variety of reasons. Life is not always easy, it's not always fair, or it's not always kind. Sometimes life is harsh. We face illnesses or pain. We face the death of a child or a parent. Relationships are often strained and damaged. 
we have wayward children or estranged children that we long to see return home. We can suffer through an unhappy marriage or even suffer through an ended marriage. All of this is a reminder that the world that we live in has been shipwrecked by sin. The world we live in has been utterly destroyed by sin, corrupted by sin. It groans, it longs for, it eagerly awaits its redemption and restoration. It's broken into pieces. And the sin-cursed world longs for the final day of its own salvation But this account reminds us, listen, that the greatest shipwrecks of life, within the greatest shipwrecks of life, there is one who has promised to bring us safely to shore. There is only one who can deliver us. There is only one who can deliver all of humanity from sin. And it's fascinating when I just think, listen, if you allow me again to just use this as a picture of of all of humanity. All of humanity, listen, shipwrecked by sin deserves to die. All of us deserve to be slain. There should be no escape from death for any one of us. But in God's grace, he brings the solution to our sin. He comes to us in Jesus Christ. And any who grab a hold of him can float safely to shore. There is only one who can bring us safely to shore. God alone can and will hold us fast. As he holds us fast, you have to see this. Listen, God is forging us. He's forging our faith. Oswald Chambers wrote these words that are so fitting. He says, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, while his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he's about. Are you allowing God to shape you in the trials of life? The way out of the trial is through. In faith, trusting in his plans, resting in his presence. This morning as we celebrate the Lord's table, I want to do so with the reminder, listen, that God's presence is with us. Wherever you are today, whatever you've been going through, whatever you, w- you may encounter in this life, the sure hope that you have, the anchor for your soul, the security that you long for, the strength that you need, the safety and the salvation that he has brought to you is found in the presence of Jesus Christ.